Corinthians 16, starting in verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits, and I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greeting. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel, and we thank you for this church, God. I pray that you'd be with Pastor Tommy as he delivers the message to us this morning, God. Might your Holy Spirit be upon him. Might you just speak through him, God. Might it be your words and not his. I pray that you'd be with him as he leads us this morning, God. I pray for our church body here at Mercy House as a whole, God, that you would be with us, and I pray that your spirit would be upon our meeting uh, this afternoon, God, that there would just be a spirit of unity amongst your body, and I pray that your spirit would be active amongst us, building us up for good works for you, God. We lift this time before you, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, Mercy House. I'm Pastor Tommy, and I'm really glad that you're joining us this morning. This is a really exciting morning for us as we kind of come in for the final approach to the landing of this spring sermon series called Fractured Church. And if you're just joining us now, you kind of missed all of it. Uh, that's okay. Uh, we've gone through the entire book of 1 Corinthians. It's taken us about 20 weeks. Uh, we've had some tough passages along the way. We've had some long passages along the way. Um, and today, we're going to take some time to wrap it all up in chapter 16. So the question is, is how do you wrap up a letter like this? Paul has talked about some really intense fractures within the church at Corinth, fractures in the social dynamics of the congregation with divisions of people that are being pitted against one another. He's bringing up fractures in how they treated sin as a community, fractures in how they struggled with things like sexual immorality and drunkenness. They're bringing each other to court over really petty things. They've got fractures in their theology and their understanding and their practice of the gospel. So the church in Corinth is often, often seen as kind of the black sheep of the early church. It's really the most messy of Paul's church plants, and, and there's a reason for this. So going back all the way to the beginning, we set this up understanding that Corinth as a city is, is kind of like uh, Wall Street meeting Las Vegas. Okay, so it was a city that was based on competition and ambition towards success. They glorified money, sex, and power. And that culture wasn't something that was just checked in at the door as they came into church on Sundays. It, it bled into the church and how they interacted as a community. 
This was pretty natural. There was no expectation for transformation overnight, which is why Paul spends 15 chapters encouraging them and exhorting them and helping to train and equip them to mature and, and to experience that gospel transformation as individuals in the church, but also as a church as a whole. And so the main idea and what we'll sometimes refer to as the melodic line that runs through, through the entire book of 1 Corinthians is that God has intended for the church to be the primary means through which Christians live their life of faith in Jesus. So the church is not an afterthought. It, it, it's, it is what Jesus died for in order to establish and for us to be able to be a part of and not to be received as a once-in-a-week thing that we just kind of check off of our calendars. But if we are Christians, we have been adopted into the family of God with different members in the family, different giftings to all serve the Lord and serve one another with our time, with our resources, and with our entire lives. And this is why Paul labors for the churches. This is why Paul sees the numerous fractures in Corinth and that leads him to lean into that mess and want to guide them toward maturity. If church wasn't a big deal, no one would go through all of that tearful toiling of trying to heal and repair the fractures in the church. And so the book of 1 Corinthians shows us that God has designed the church. <laughs> he, he died for the church, that he treasures the church, and that he will heal, he will redeem, and he will grow the church into complete maturity. That's the trajectory. So chapter 16, as you read through it, at first glance, I think it reads kind of like a midweek email update. Kind of something that you'd be in on like an email chain for, something that you might scan quickly. You get the gist of it, you mark it as read, and then you go about your day. But I would argue that this last chapter likely had the Corinthians leaning in the closest. So they are the final words of Paul in this letter. And in a day, an age where communication was severely limited, uh, when the survival rate of opposition-seeking church planners like Paul was really low, this final chapter would be like savoring the final bite of, of a delicious meal and kind of wishing, man, I, I don't want this to end. But more than longing for food, the, they were a fractured church that longed for some spiritual guidance from their spiritual father. As a severely hurting church, they longed for emotional encouragement and any form of assurance or affirmation that everything was going to be okay, that they were going to make it, not just implode in their mess of a church. So the Corinthians clung to the cross for dear life, and the words of Paul were being delivered as the words of God to his beloved church. Corinthians are listening in chapter 16. Now there are a lot of scattered details in chapter 16, and, and we're, we're going to jump around a little bit here and there, but when you take time to read through it, there are several things that I think you learn about the early church. And I don't just mean the church in Corinth. I'm talking about like the corporate big C church, the global body of believers at that time. And so here are five observations I want to point out in the text this morning about the early church, which are things I think that we ought to also aspire uh, to do ourselves and also continue on in. So number one, the early church was a church that gives. Number two, it was a church that serves. Number three, it was a church that was composed of many people in many places. Number four, it was a church that was not afraid. And number five, it was a church that was maturing in love. Before I jump in, let's pray. Father, I pray that your word would be loud and bold and cut to the hearts of those who are listening today. Lord, bring encouragement and challenge, shape and mold us as a church and as individuals let us not leave here the same way as when we came. Father, I need your help. I pray, Lord, that you would show up and that your voice would be clear and that it would be heard and received. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Number one, the early church was a church that gives. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 16, I encourage you to have this out open in front of you. Um, when I reference other parts of the Bible, those will be on the screen, but I really want you guys to look at this for yourselves. Verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you are credit 
by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. In the first part of Paul's final instruction here, we're seeing Paul provide instructions for how the church ought to practice giving, specifically to support the needs of other Christians. And this isn't just a mandate to the well-to-do Corinthians. Uh, Paul also is instructing other churches, in Galatia, uh, Galatia specifically, to do the same thing. And what we see here is that the early church didn't hoard their resources. Paul was establishing a culture where considering the needs of others extended beyond the walls of even the church. And this is really going to stretch the generosity and the care and the love of the Corinthians, a church that struggled even to be generous among themselves. But this was to help them grow as a church into the generosity of God. As you read the Bible, you see that God is an extravagantly generous God. And his kingdom, his people, would be one that not only looks out for itself, but it would be one that would radiate blessing outward toward all of the world around them. But there are some practical steps to make this happen. This generosity, like most of the other virtues, it doesn't just sprout spontaneously in our hearts and our lives oftentimes. Sometimes it requires some initiation and some encouragement, which is why Paul is providing some training wheels for them. He says in verse 2, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come and when I arrive. I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So Paul advises them to set up a system on a weekly basis, set aside some resources so that there's no collection that gets taken up when Paul comes. And so the purpose of this is that Paul wants them to be intentional about their giving, to be thoughtful about how much to give. They're calculating it on a weekly basis, to be methodical, but also regular and consistent in their giving. And these directions for a regular setting aside of resources are challenging them to be wise stewards of their resources, but also to be constantly thinking of others within the context of their resources and to do this out of their own free will. So they're not doing this just when Paul comes and kind of holds out his hand. He's like, hey, do you have, do you have the giving, the offering? He's like, no, I'm not going to ask you. Like, don't do this on the day that I come. There's no coercion that's happening. I want you to do this of your own free will. Money can be one of the harder things to talk about within the church. So everyone's situation is different. Everyone has different views on money, whether that's inherited from your parents or from the world. But it's also hard to talk about because money, for many of us, is not just a number in a bank account. It's deeply, deeply connected into our hearts. So for some of us, our money provides for us a sense of worth. For others of us, it provides us a sense of security in a crazy world. For others of us, it's a means to comfort. I think as humans, money is the most common idol to worship most common master to serve. So when we talk about giving up your money and investing in things that do not directly affect you, at least on the outset, that can be really hard to say the least. But just because it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. That's kind of the theme of 1 Corinthians. And so talking about money might make some of us uncomfortable, but I think that's all the more reason to press in. I've honestly found that more people are willing and comfortable to be transparent about like really deep sin struggles than to be transparent about their finances and their spending habits. But here's the reality. I think a lack of generosity is evidence of a lack of understanding of the gospel. So in other words, if you're not giving your resources, you might not be getting the gospel. So before you dismiss me, let me clarify this a little bit. I think for some Christians, a lack of giving is not from a lack of understanding of the gospel. It's simply a lack of discipleship. So some Christians have never been told, hey, you should give. Or they've never actually been shown how to give. Like, hey, how much should I give? Or they hear teaching on giving, they've been shown how, but they honestly don't think that it applies to them for whatever reason. Maybe they consider themselves not making enough money in order to give. Maybe they think that they're a new believer, and this is a command for more mature believers. Or maybe they don't have a lot of money, so uh, they don't think that what little they can give actually makes any impact or that it's worth giving at all. So uh, let me speak to this camp first, the people in this camp. If, if you are a Christian, you ought to give. 
you're a Christian, you ought to give. Paul's words are quite clear. He's not giving this directive to set aside resources each week to some members of the church. He's not talking to the heads of households. He's not talking to those with good and stable income. He's not talking to those with lots to spare. He's not talking to those who have the gift of giving, which we talked about earlier in 1 Corinthians. On verse 2, in verse 2, it says, on the first day of, of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So who, who ought to give? Everyone. Each of us. Everyone in the church should have a habit of giving. So I think the question might be, well, how much? I think, look at this passage Yeah, Look at verse 2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So that's the phrase that you can circle there. So that there will be no collecting when I come. Giving should be relative to how much we each prosper. Or in other words, we should give in proportion to our income. Now, you may have heard of the word a tithe, which is a term that's used in the Old Testament where God establishes parameters for his people, for how they ought to handle their resources. And you read about this in places like Leviticus chapter 27. And it literally means a tenth part, which is a model that many people in the church use today to help determine how much they ought to give to the church. So 10% of their income is the tithe. This is an Old Testament conception of tithing that goes to the church. Here are a couple, I think, really interesting things that most people, even if you know the word tithe, uh, you don't know about the biblical idea of tithing. So number one is that the purpose of a tithe was to give back to God what it is, what, what is his, I'm sorry. So Randy Alcorn, he's an author of a book called Money, Possessions, and Eternity, which I highly recommend if you want to learn how to steward your resources in a godly way. He says this, the tithe, or that is the tenth, was recognized as God's. Hence, people didn't give a tithe, but repaid it to the owner of all things. This is why the Old Testament speaks of bringing, taking, presenting, or even paying tithes and first fruits, rather than giving them. These payments were no more optional than paying taxes today. An Israelite paid tithes and first fruits out of obedience, whether or not he wanted to. This is also why Israel does, when they don't tithe, God calls them out. And you see this in Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, for robbing God. That's how God sees it. Because all blessings, all resources, they originate from God and they are owned by God. So as you're listening to this, if you're not a Christian, like this really doesn't apply to you. So I, that's like my caveat as I move on. This is for those who follow Jesus, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. So that's one thing about Old Testament tithing that a lot of people don't understand. The second thing is that Israel actually had multiple tithes. <laughs> they had a tithe that blessed the priests and those who served the temple. They had another tithe that went toward funding festivals and temple operations. And then another tithe that went toward meeting the needs of widows and orphans. All in all, Israel was commanded to repay, not give, but repay almost 23% of their gross income. That's before any free will offerings. And those free will offerings and giving, as we understand giving today, would be above and beyond that 23%. Not many people know this. Which means that 10% is not the ceiling, it's actually the floor of giving. Okay? If you're a Christian and you don't give, you're not alone. You're not alone. According to Barna Research, between 30 to 50% of active church attenders give nothing. And those who do give, on average, will give anywhere between 2 and 5% of their income. If you're a Christian, if you're a regular attender of a church, if specifically if you're a member of Mercy House, I do want to encourage you to consider tithing, giving 10% of your gross income, and that's before taxes and deductions. And you might ask, well, why, why gross? Well, I think because the tithe is a tenth of all that God gives us, which includes the money that we set aside for taxes and health insurance and retirement and other benefits that might come out of our paycheck. And I want to encourage you to do this with the same directive that Paul gives, to do it intentionally and regularly, to develop a habit of this biblical concept. Now, ultimately, we are not bound by Old Testament law. Like our salvation as Christians does not depend on our obedience to God's law, but our relationship with God and our spiritual health can benefit by living in the way that God calls his people to live. 
So that's why we don't worship idols. That's why we don't kill one another. That's why we don't steal. That's why we, don't, that's why we do Sabbath and take a rest. Paul's exhortation to give is not new. It's a part of a thread that runs throughout all of Scripture where God is inviting his people to surrender their resources and to trust in his care for them. For us, it can be a surrendering of an idol, something that we might value more than God, something that we might worship and not be willing to let go of. So in that process of tithing, we are actively and regularly surrendering that to communicate to ourselves and also to God that God is more valuable than all of the money that we have in the bank. We show that by tithing 10%. Now, tithing allows us to be invested in what God is doing. Tithing allows us to be supporting ministries of specifically here, Mercy House and beyond. So tithing practically helps support the preaching of God's word here in the valley, but also all around the world. Mercy House is transparent with its finances, and you'll know that if you come to our budget meeting. Our entire budget is open, line by line. You can see where every dollar is being planned to go. And what you'll see if you come to that meeting, you look at our budget, is that the church also tithes as, a, as an entity. So all of the income, one-tenth of our church income, gets sent outside of these walls to other ministries and other missions opportunities all around the world. So we're not asking you to do something that we ourselves as a church don't do. We're inviting you to participate in that. Let me sum all this up by saying this. Everyone's financial situation is different. I understand that. Tithing is a bare minimum which God invites us into. If you don't have an income, don't tithe. So 10% of $0 is $0. If you, don't have, uh, if, if you don't have an income and you're like, I really want to give, like, don't tithe off of a credit card. I've heard of people doing this. Don't do that. Like, that's foolish. That's not what God is asking you to do. If you are doing the math and you're like, man, 10% of my income is $1 a week, then faithfully drop in $1 into the basket or set up an auto deduction from your bank account for $1. I think the fees might actually, like, negate that, but you should still do it. Because tithing is not about the amount, as if God needed your money, right? You understand that, right? God doesn't need your money. He can do everything he wants to do without your money. But it is about learning to trust the Lord through faithful obedience. And that's what we're invited into. If you already give 10%, awesome. I want to encourage you to regularly look at your finances to see if you can give more. And that's not to increase your tithe. That's just to think about generosity beyond that tithe. And not because Pastor Tommy said so, but because God might be inviting you to deepen your trust and your faith in him. God invites us to test him only in one place in the entire Bible. Did you know that? There's only one place where God says, test me. Do you know what that testing is in regards to? So going back into Malachi 3, which I referenced earlier, where God rebukes Israel for robbing him by not bringing their tithes to him. Look at what he says. This is going to be on your screens. Chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the full tithe, because they were tithing less than that that 10%, into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God commands and challenges us to test his provision. This is not a prosperity gospel. I am not saying if you tithe that God will bless you with more money. But God will bless us with what we need. He will bless us spiritually, which is even more important than dollars and cents, as we rely on him, and he will bless us with eternal rewards, which we've talked about earlier in the sermon series, if and when we sacrificially give with a heart of gratitude and a heart of reliance on God. So the Old Testament tithe might be 10 to 23 percent, depending on how you look at it, but the New Testament standard of giving is 100 percent. 100%. That's what Paul means when he tells us to offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice in Romans 12, that it's our entire lives that are placed on this altar of sacrifice as a response to the incredible grace and the incredible generosity that God has shown to us. 
So we don't give to earn. We give as a response to Christ, giving 100% of himself up to us by dying on the cross and giving up his life, his entire life, in order to purchase our redemption. The early church was a church that gives. And I pray that we would continue and aggressively grow in this long-standing tradition of God's people. Number two, the early church was a church that serves. A church that serves. Look at verses 15 through 18. We're going to jump down a little bit. Paul says, now I urge you, brothers, that you, uh, I'm sorry, I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they were, and that, I'm sorry, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice in the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours give recognition to such people the early church was filled with people who not only gave resources but their time you see there in verse 15 that the household of stephanus and whenever you see the word household that's understood as the, their family and also their extended family and so the family of stephanus had apparently devoted themselves to the service of saints this is a pretty radical concept you've got this family who became christians and then they devoted themselves not just once in a while not just in part but they committed themselves they completely focused themselves they made it their central priority of their entire family to serve the saints to serve the body of believers to serve the church so not to overcomplicate it stephanus and his family made it their job to meet the needs of the church this meant providing hospitality for others which included cooking for them and taking care of them giving them a place to stay and paul points out that this is a mark of true leadership in the church they weren't just meeting practical needs jump down to verses uh, 17 and 18. Paul says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. I think a reason why it can be hard sometimes to get people to serve in church is because people don't see how their service goes beyond just setting up chairs and turning some dials on the soundboard. When Paul is talking about being refreshed, he's not just talking about having a cold cup of water and a hot meal. He's talking about his spirit being refreshed. We serve one another in practical ways and by meeting practical needs, but as a means to serve the heart and the soul of a brother or a sister. Dylan Wilson babysits for us. Is he here? I don't think he's even here. Perfect. Uh, that's good. I don't want to be puffed up. Dylan Wilson, he babysits for us. He and others will message us out of the blue, and they'll say, hey, do you want a date night? I I'd love to watch your kids. And I cry a little bit, and I say, yes, please. Dylan doesn't come and watch our kids because he just likes hanging out with our kids, which he does. He likes our kids. He doesn't watch our kids just to fill a need or to get some free Wi-Fi and Netflix at our house. Dylan and others who watch our kids do so to serve Caitlin and I. Like, they meet the need of childcare as a means to give us a reprieve, to give us a chance to fellowship with one another and to refresh our souls. So Mercy House, when you are asked to serve, you're being asked to serve people, not just to do things. When you're asked to greet people, you're being asked to serve people. When you're being asked to set up chairs and prepare this space for everybody, you're being asked to serve and love the people who come into the space to worship the Lord. When you're asked to serve on AV, you're, you're serving people who are listening, both in this room and at home on our live stream or on the podcast. When we ask for people to like cook a meal and to deliver it to someone in the church, you're loving and serving those people who could be really ministered to by a meal. When opportunities are presented for you to serve, they are not just tasks that need to be done. They are opportunities for you as a church to serve and love one another as a church. 
the early church was devoted to the service of the saints. And I pray that we too would carry on this long-standing tradition of God's people. Number three, the early church was a church of many people in many places. There honestly really isn't an application on this point. I just think it's an observation that is incredibly beautiful and encouraging to me, so I hope it does the same for you. I want us to look at all of the people who were involved in the early church just in this chapter. You have those who carry the gift that's being gathered in verse 3. You have Timothy, Paul's disciple and spiritual son in verse 10. You have the brothers whom Paul is expecting with Timothy in verse 11. You have Apollos, this incredibly gifted communicator, and the first celebrity preacher, preacher which is called out earlier and admonished, but that's a whole other sermon in verse 12. You have the household of Stephanus, these first converts in Achaia. You have Stephanus himself. You have Fortunatus and Achaius in verse 17. You have Achilla and Prisca, the dynamo duo that are always mentioned in tandem, tandem in verse 19. Uh, all the people in their, the church that meets at their house in verse 19. You have all the brothers that are referenced in verse 20. You have Paul himself that's referenced in verse 21. And of course, you have Jesus himself that's referenced in verse 23. The early church was a church of lots of different people, all interacting in different ways with different giftings and different passions and, and, and different ideas and, 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 and just like built differently. And they're all encouraging one another and they're meeting practical needs by giving to one another, but they're also serving and refreshing one another. The early church wasn't reclusive or an exclusive club that was tucked away. It was a trending hashtag that invited anybody and everybody to join into this gospel movement. And this isn't just in a single town. In this chapter alone, you see five different Roman provinces mentioned. It's an international movement. So you have Galatia, you have Judea, you have Macedonia, you have Achaia, and you have Asia. These areas in the Roman Empire represent incredibly different cultures and regions. You've got European and Eastern cultures. You've got Jews and you've got Arabs. You've got Greeks and Romans. You've got people from the city and you've got people from the farm. You've got adults. You've got teens. You've got children. And what's beautiful about all of this is that this is what God intended from the beginning. This is the fulfillment of God's promise in the Old Testament to bless the nations. Not just Israel, but people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's what we just sang earlier. Psalm 117, verse 1 says, Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. That's a glimpse into what God would eventually do. Luke 24, at the end of Jesus' ministry, comes back, he says, Then he opened their minds, this is him, Jesus talking to his disciples, to understand the scriptures, and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Look around this room. I'm serious. Like, look around at one another. This is a pretty diverse room. We have people from the north and the south, the east and the west. We have people representing, honestly, dozens of different countries from multiple different continents. I want you to raise your hand. Don't be shy. I want you to raise your hand um, if English is not your first language. Anybody? Handful of us. Keep your hands raised. Keep your hands raised. I want you to raise your hand if Amherst is not where you are originally from. Raise your hand nice and high. Okay? That's pretty wild. Raise your hand if you love Jesus. Yeah. What I want us to see, Mercy House, is that we are on an unstoppable trajectory that God established at the very beginning. And what God says he will do, he will do. What God started, he will finish. He will bring us to Revelation chapter 7, verse, verses 9 through 11, which John writes as he's given a glimpse into the end time. So he says, this is going to be on your screens, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Mercy House, this church in Amherst, Massachusetts is evidence of God's faithfulness to his mission. 
We are being brought into this final picture of redemption and restoration that you see in Revelation. To a completed kingdom where King Jesus reigns and where we will delight in our Savior forever and ever. The early church was a snapshot of this heaven made up of many people in many different places. And we today are carrying on this beautiful eternal image of God's people. Number four, the early church was a church that was not afraid. It was not afraid. Look at verses five through nine. Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. At first glance, this just looks like a travel itinerary. Paul is letting the Corinthians know that he's going to try to make it out to see them after passing through Macedonia, which coincidentally is where the future churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea are going to be planted by Paul. And he doesn't want to just drop in on them, but he wants to spend a substantial amount of time with the Corinthians, perhaps spending the winter there. And I think one little snippet that you can gather from this is that Paul genuinely loves the church at Corinth. Like, he's not a distant CEO or, like, a president just wanting to order things. He knows the Corinthians, and, and he desires to be with them in person for a substantial amount of time. So you've got some basic travel plans for Paul, but then he drops verses 8 and 9, which are really fascinating. Paul had just arrived in Ephesus, which is where he's writing this letter to the Corinthians from. He just arrived in Ephesus. Verse 8, he writes this, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So this is fascinating for what I think are two reasons. One, Paul has no idea what's about to happen to him in Ephesus, which is going to delay him significantly from coming to Corinth, and I'm going to talk about this in a minute. And two, we see an incredibly radical mindset for Christian living. Let me start with number one. When you read the book of Acts, what we see is what actually happens to Paul in Ephesus. You see this in chapter 19 of Acts. Paul writes uh, in his letter to the Corinthians, I'm going to stay here for a little bit because I think that there's an opportunity here. Lo and behold, Paul shows up and finds 12 men who appear to have heard parts of the gospel. We're not quite there yet, so hold on. Uh, they hear parts of the gospel as told by John the Baptist, but they haven't like, heard about Jesus. And so Paul preaches the whole gospel to them. He baptizes them. He lays hands on them and prays for them. They get the Holy Spirit, and then they start speaking in tongues and prophesying, and boom, Paul plants the church in Ephesus. But that was just the beginning. He's about to be held up a little bit longer. So now you should be seeing on your screen verses 8 through 10. And he, this is Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So pause real quick. Paul is preaching in the temple every single day. They get sick of him. Uh, he takes those who are believers with him into this place called the hall of Tyrannus. People think that this is like a big courtyard that a really rich person owned. And it's, what it is, is it's a public open-air auditorium where he continued to preach and teach daily and then you see this in verse 10 this continued for two years so that all the residents of asia heard the word of the lord both jews and greeks paul's hunch that there's an opportunity in ephesus was wildly correct not only did he have the opportunity to preach the gospel to like some people three months turned into two years to the point at which all the residents of asia heard the word of the lord that's some prolific preaching. Something that you need to know is that the Ephesians are a rowdy crowd. They're a rowdy crowd. If Corinth was like Wall Street and Vegas with their greed and their licentiousness, Ephesus is like Salem, Massachusetts in the late 1600s with like overt demonic spiritual warfare happening everywhere. Demons are so prevalent that there are professional Jewish exorcists 
trying to exercise demons, and some of which, the sons of Sceva, you read about this in chapter 19, meet a demon-possessed person who overpowers seven of these exorcists, and he beats them up so badly that they run away naked. I am not making this up. This is going to be on your screen. Read about this in chapter 9. This is verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them and that they and so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded i don't think those guys showed up to work the next day the birth of the church in ephesus was an absolute war zone and paul knew that it would be he didn't know to what extent but his radical mindset for life and ministry is revealed in those two verses let me read it again. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. So he sees that opportunity, and there are many adversaries. You read that slowly and really listen, that's strange. Who in their right mind qualifies opportunity by the presence of hardship? Nobody. That's what Paul is saying here. Usually, when we say that a door has been opened for, like, effective work, it usually means, man, things have really conveniently aligned for me. Like, I got this job. They accepted our offer on this house. There's, like, a church right down the road. And I'm not saying God can't bless you uh, with things like that or that God doesn't open doors like that, so don't hear me. But what I'm trying to say is that Paul is looking for something different as he's knocking on doors for opportunities. What qualifies as an opportunity for Paul? Adversaries. People who challenge his preaching of the gospel. And Paul is not just a glutton for punishment. He's wired like a firefighter who sees a raging inferno and where most people are like jumping out of windows and running away, Paul tightens up his sandal straps and just like runs toward the fire. That's why, that's like the way that he's wired to live and do ministry. Mercy House, this is what it looked like to do ministry in the early church. There is no church that existed then where there were established ministries already happening and you could just kind of sit in the back and be spiritually fed and then leave. That was not an option in the early church. To be a Christian meant choosing a life of hardship. And Paul was on a mission. And the early church inherited this mission to bring the gospel to a sick and suffering world tension and hardship didn't turn them off from this mission. They gravitated toward it, like a doctor gravitates toward those who are injured or who are ill. They couldn't help themselves. Mercy House, don't let adversity scare you away. If you're following Jesus and he's calling you into a season that's messy or hard, a season that might leave you crying more and sleeping less, don't be afraid. Jesus has overcome the world. And Paul knew this, which is why he wasn't scared. And there was reason to be scared. Not only was there crazy spiritual warfare in Ephesus, there was also Demetrius. He's a disgruntled silversmith who organized the other business owners to riot in the city because the gospel is upturning uh, the entire economic situation in Ephesus. And in their anger, they drag two of Paul's disciples into the theater to lynch them. And look at how Paul responds to it. This is in verses 28 and 30. When they heard this, they were enraged. This is the crowd. And were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. So the picture is of these two Christians who are being dragged off by an angry mob, and Paul is being restrained by his disciples who are preventing him from rushing out to be with them. I imagine his disciples are like, Paul, they're going to kill you. And Paul's like, I don't care. They need the gospel. Two years of this for Paul. Two years preaching and ministering every day. Fiery courage, supernatural endurance, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Was it worth it? Look at verse 18 and 20. Many of those who are now believers came 
confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The church at Ephesus would go on to be one of the most incredible churches planted by Paul. This was a church that was known throughout all of the other churches, specifically for their sacrificial and their fearless love for one another. And that church, the early church, was not afraid of hardship. Paul was hardly the first or the last recklessly brave and bold man of God who knew that the Lord was with him wherever he went. And I pray that we too would carry on this long-standing tradition of gospel bravery, even in the midst of hardship and challenge, as God's people did. Number five, this is the last point for this morning. The early church was a church that was maturing in love toward, uh, I'm sorry, the early church was a church that was maturing in love. Toward the end of this letter, Paul gives this final charge to his beloved church, verses 13 through 14. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. There's a lot that's communicated in Paul's letter, but as Paul wraps it up, this is a fitting charge for them as a church. He tells them to be watchful, keep your eyes open, be vigilant for challenges that are going to come, challenges from within, challenges from outside of the church. Not with fear or anxiety, but standing firm in the faith, faith in the gospel that doesn't collapse or even shift. That's what we sang about earlier as well. He says, act like men which is not having machismo or emphasizing gender as much as it is growth. Paul says early in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. Paul gives this exhortation to act grown up, to not live in ignorance or naivety, But as they learn, as they read this letter, they ought to live out the things that the Lord is calling them to do. He says to them, be strong. The Corinthians, for them to continue doing church as they have with these fractures that are being revealed is going to require strength. The kind of strength that's needed to endure an invasive medical procedure the kind of strength that's needed to persist through physical therapy in order to be made whole and right again. The exhortation to be strong doesn't mean to be something that they are not, but for us to be who God made us to be in the things that God is calling us to do. Saying, be strong. And lastly, let all that we do be done in love. Man, if the Corinthians could truly love one another, all of their fractures would honestly evaporate overnight, I think. They wouldn't be divided. They wouldn't be passive as their brothers and sisters struggled in sin. They wouldn't be suing one another. They wouldn't be competing against one another. They wouldn't be discounting and and diminishing one another. They wouldn't oppress one another. Jesus wasn't kidding when he answered the question, what is the most important commandment? You see this in Matthew 22, verse 37 and 40. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Mercy House, as we continue on in this season of transition as a church, I hope, truly hope, that you are encouraged by the book of 1 Corinthians. We are not the first church to endure hardship. We're not the first church to wrestle through challenges, challenges that might appear to threaten the very foundation of the church. But our foundation is Christ, and it is unshakable, and it is immovable. The early church survived and thrived for thousands of years because they continued to mature in love through the ages. They were watchful. They stood firm in the faith. They acted like grown-ups. They chose to be strong, and they endeavored to do everything out of love 
for one another. So may we, like the early church before us, continue on in this long-standing tradition as God's people. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. No matter what life brings to us or our church, this meal never changes. It will always remind us of why we ought to be generous and give because God has ultimately been generous and gave his, the life of his son so that our sin could be forgiven. It will always remind us of why we serve because Christ himself came not to be served but to serve even to the point of death. Communion will always remind us that we are part of a church of many people in many places as people from every nation, tribe, and tongue gather and come up to the front here in a moment to break bread and to drink of the cup. Communion reminds us of where God has brought us from and where he's continuing to mature us toward until the day that his work in each of us will be complete. This meal reminds us of why we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid because we are not condemned in our sin. God's wrath is not waiting to be poured out onto us. We are not eternally separated from God, but we are forgiven. We are made new. We are empowered by his Holy Spirit to do his work. And we're reminded when we eat and drink of this meal that we have perfect and complete communion with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for every word of your word. Thank you for men like Paul who demonstrated wholehearted, complete life trust in you. God, we confess that we are not by nature generous. We, by our own nature, are not inclined to serve. God, we are not inclined to be brave. Lord, help us transform our hearts through your gospel to help us, um, Lord, be men and women who, like the early church, risked everything to follow you. Father, thank you for how you have held the early church fast, how you continue to hold our church fast. Thank you that we don't have to be afraid of what's to come. Thank you that all things are in your hands, even in seasons when things feel completely out of control, they are not out of your control. Lord, help us as a response to worship you with our whole hearts, with our whole lives. God, I thank you for each person here. May your word bless them this day. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.